what we love to do in the fall is we love to read the word together. And so our staff has put together a devotional book. Uh, I think it's the best that we've done so far. It covers, what, 40 days or so. Uh, each chapter of the book of Job is included in here. There's some explanation, some commentary, some things to help you uh, process in your devotions. We would love for every single person in our, our church to have one of these. Uh, the cost of these for us is about five bucks. If you want to do a donation of five dollars, that's fine. If you don't have that, we still would like you to have this book. We have found that as a church, if we're all reading together, something happens in the spiritual atmosphere. Something begins to change. Things begin to take place in people's lives if we're all on the same page together in the scriptures. So we'd love for you to have one of these. If you'd like to have one and you don't have one yet, would you raise your hand? We'll get you one right now. We're so serious about this. We'll give it to you right now. All right, so we'll start today in, in Job chapter 1. If you'll look on your bulletin, you'll see our scripture reading for today. We're reading from uh, verse 8 through verse 22. Uh, I know it's a long passage, but I like it when we read God's word together. So let's read out loud the word of God. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine, at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So, each of us, in the course of our lives, each of us has experienced and will experience loss. Loss is something that is common to all of us. But what loss causes is a, a, an emotional pain or emotional suffering. How we respond to that suffering and what we conclude about that suffering then begins to form whether we'll be strong, whether we'll have a future, whether we'll have a hope, whether we'll have any joy or any of those things. All of us have got to get to the place where there's an emotional intelligence for us to be able to handle the losses that we experience in our life. And so what happens is a lot of times for Christians, when we experience loss and we're going through suffering, someone will recommend or will decide, I'm going to study the book of Job. And thinking often that Job is, is going to help us get through our, our suffering. Now, one commentator had this to say. He said, it is not uncommon for people to turn to the book of Job when they encounter suffering. But all too often they find the book unsatisfying. They think that the book will explain why they or their loved ones are suffering or why there is so much suffering in the world. They have the impression that the book is about Job and that he's going to provide a model for how they should respond in times of suffering. They expect to learn why God acts the way that he does, why he allows or even causes righteous people to suffer. Now, there's a current or a kind of contemporary dealing with suffering that is a little bit different than the ancient way, but yet they really center around some of the same philosophies or, or principles. In the ancient world, it was believed that if you were righteous, you would be blessed. And if you were unrighteous, you would be cursed. So if you are experiencing cursing, it must be because you have sinned in some way. And so in our day, we tend to look at it more this way. We say, <coughs> why do bad things happen to good people? We, we hardly ever write books about why do good things happen to bad people. <laughs> but for some reason, we are fascinated by the thought that we, who are good people, have bad things happen to us. And so there's always been this, this wrestling of the connection between righteousness and suffering and unrighteousness and cursing. Even in, in this passage that we read, Satan is saying to God about Job that if you take away all the blessing, then Job will curse you to your face. Now, um, in a sense, you could look at this, and, and it helps to look at it and realize in many ways Job is really not on trial here. Now, it, he acts a little bit like a defendant when he's answering his critics who are supposedly his friends, but he's not really on trial. He's in a trial. He's being tested, in a sense. He's being revealed. He's being refined. Now, why, why would this matter? Well, think with me on this. Notice what God says. Have you considered my servant Job, he says to Satan? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. 
See, in a way, Job is not on trial because God has already declared his uprightness. God has already declared his righteousness. God has already owned Job's identity. In the same way, in the same way, in the New Testament, it says that our union with Christ, our connection to Jesus by relationship with Jesus puts us in a right standing with God. In his righteousness, we become righteous. In his holiness, we become holiness. Uh, And if you can get that declaration, what will happen is that you can go through suffering and you'll be unshakable. You'll be immovable. Because your identity will not be will not be determined by what's going on in your circumstances. Your identity has already been set. It's already been declared by the righteous judge. In many ways, there's only one being who has the right to declare your identity, and it's not even you. It's God himself. And if he has declared you righteous, it doesn't matter what Satan accuses. If he has declared you a saint then it doesn't matter what even your own past seems to say about you. In some way, there, you cannot deal with the losses or the pain or the suffering of life until you settle your identity. And it is only in Christ that identity is settled by relationship, not behavior. As a matter of fact, all of, of the book of Romans centers around this thought that a righteousness has appeared from God that is approved by God, but is received not by works, not by performing under the law, but rather by faith from start to finish. And there, there, there has to be, if you are going to be more than a conqueror in this world, there has to be a rock-solid commitment that I am who the Father says that I am. I am who Jesus declares that I am. I am who the Spirit says that I am. In Romans 8, It says that God has given to us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and we're no longer slaves to fear. But see, if you're not settled in that, if Satan can unsettle your identity, then what happens is you're not on trial, God's on trial. Is he good? Does he love me? You see, that's always the trial. The trial really isn't about your goodness. The trial is about the goodness of God. And so in a sense, in the book of Job, the, Job, the book of Job is not primarily about Job. It's primarily about God. Then thirdly, in looking at this book and reading it together, the book is more about what motivates our righteousness rather than the reasons for suffering. The 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 contest or the challenge that Satan puts forth to God is that if you take away the blessings of righteousness, Job will not be righteous. So he's not going after Job's righteousness. He's going after the cause or the motivation for Job's righteousness. Um, Another aspect of this book is this is not primarily a history book. It is primarily a wisdom book. Um, Job's suffering leads to a heated debate throughout this book as to who has the wisdom that will help those 
characters, his friends, Job, his wife, that will help them diagnose and prescribe a remedy for Job's problems. In this book of Job, we're going to see, though, that all, though the, all the characters who are human, they all claim to be wise. And yet, the only one wise in the book of Job is God. <laughs> all right, track with me on this. Almost all of us, when we p- see people suffering, we think we should solve something. We think we should help them cope with something. In many ways, what the book of Job teaches is you don't have the wisdom to deal with your own suffering. What makes you think you have the wisdom to deal with the sufferings of others? As a matter of fact, most of us are more salt in the wound than we are balm for the wound. One of my, one of, you know, being an outsider who's moved into New York, one of the things that I observe in this area is, is a way that people help each other cope with suffering. And if you do this, it is not really my intention to offend you, but to transform you. <laughs> I have heard over and over again when something happens, someone comes up and says, oh man, it could have been so much worse. You should be thankful that it, it's no worse than it is. And I'm sitting there going, now you not only have to f- be afraid of what has happened, <laughs> but you now have to be afraid of all the things that might happen. And, and, and for some reason, that's believed to be comfort. That is not comforting. As a matter of fact, it shows a lack of wisdom. And it shows a lack of humility. Because In the end, our job is not to solve anyone's problems. Our job is not really to help them cope with reality. Our job is to connect them to the comfort of God. As a matter of fact, in the scriptures, it calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. And then Paul says that if you have learned to be comforted by the Holy Spirit, then you will have comfort with which you can comfort those who are suffering. There's some sense in which we cannot live with this do as I say but not as I do kind of mentality. We have to be those who realize that what we are going through, what others are going through, have a greater purpose and have more complex uh, layers to it than our simple sort of pat answers can give to them. Well... Let me push this a little further. The whole question in this contest, in this this challenge that Satan throws at God for his servant Job, the whole question is, will Job retain integrity when his life is a mess? The challenge says, does does Job fear God for nothing? So what Satan is ultimately questioning is he's questioning God's way of dealing with us where our God loves to bless. Our, our God loves to show his favor. This is who he is. This is, this is what he's about. And so Satan says, look, the only reason your people serve you is because they get benefits for serving you. And so Satan is accusing Job of basically being a mercenary. So the fundamental issue in the book of Job is this. Is it a good policy for God to bless the righteous by bringing them prosperity. 
So what, what Satan says is the cause of Job's righteousness, his motivation for his righteousness, will prove lacking if every blessing is taken away from him. Now, if you're tracking with me, you should be beginning to understand there's a lot going on behind the scenes in your life. As a matter of fact, Job didn't know any of this that was going on in heaven. All Job knew is he had livestock, he had herds he no longer had, he had children, he no longer had them. And he didn't know why. No one was explaining that there was a scene going on in heaven in which Satan had put God on trial and Job was the test case. Well, no book of the Bible addresses the question of suffering quite like the book of Job. It's intellectually honest, it's emotionally deep, and it's relevant in every generation. We're still asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? So here's three things that I'd like you to think about. The first one is this. When faced with suffering, either for yourself or for others, do everything you can to avoid pat answers. Please stop saying there's a reason for everything. It doesn't help. It short circuits. Let the emotions actually play out. Jesus is near to the brokenhearted, not to the false-hearted. He draws near not to those who are numb or dead in their emotions, dead in their passions. He draws near to those who weep, to those who cry, to the, Jesus himself at the loss of his best friend wept. For some of you, it's the only Bible verse in the whole Bible you remember. Jesus wept. Uh, even though, friends, even though he was going to raise him from the dead, he still experienced the loss of his life. Pat answers will not do when it comes to true loss. Now, two of the most prominent pat answers that people turn to or what I would call a religious answer, or a moral answer, or a cynical answer. And the religious answer, the moral answer, goes back to the philosophy in some ways. Again, if I do enough spiritual activity, if I do enough religious activity, if I read my Bible enough, if I pray enough, then I can somehow avoid bad things happening. There are many people throughout the world who get up at 5 a.m. to pray, not because they love praying and not because they love God, but because they're afraid if they don't, bad things will happen to them. Now, the, the funny thing is they think God doesn't know their motives. <laughs> See, if your motive is that, you might as well sleep in. Because it's the heart that matters. It is not the words that matter. The, the issue quite often, when it comes to a religious response to suffering, the religious issue is basically you're acting like you're a renter in the house of God instead of being a son or a daughter in the house of God. If you, if you think about it, who is it that has the right to wake the king up at 3 a.m. in the morning? Only a son or a daughter. No one else. Anyone else gets their head chopped off, you know, at 3 a.m. in the morning. 
even if all the son or daughter wants is a cup of water. The king will at least wake the servants up to get (laughs) the cup of water. But see, what religious response is as if you have a lease agreement with God and he has a contract with you and you do this much reading of the Bible, you do this much listening to a preacher who preaches a long time on Sunday and you do this much and that much and then everything's supposed to go right for you. That's a pat answer. As a matter of fact, that's a law answer and it's a law that God did not create so it doesn't work. It's a dangerous dead end. This is why so many people quit praying, they quit going to church, they quit their faith, is because basically all they have is religion, not relationship. They have never established their identity as a child of God by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and have come into that place where they know I have a right standing with God. And by having a right standing, I can ask him for anything in his name and he will do it. So... If your response when you suffer or when you experience loss is, I didn't pray enough, you have fallen for a religious answer that doesn't work. Or I didn't witness enough. Or I didn't didn't read my Bible enough. If you think there's some kind of simple cause and effect here, then you're not understanding the scriptures. Then secondly, we live in a world in which people have, have come into a very cynical answer about loss and about suffering. Basically, they believe everything is random. Since there is no ultimate, there is no ultimate God, there is no ultimate sovereign over life, everything is basically random. And then, when bad things happen, you will hear people say something like this. If there is a God, then he must be incompetent or inadequate or in some way indifferent to our struggles. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have to have these kind of losses or these kind of struggles. I heard a story this week. I think I had heard it before, but there was a, about a 13-year-old boy who went to a, a, a mainline church, a denominational church, and uh, he, at 13, he came up after the service and he asked the pastor a couple of questions about the sovereignty of God and does God know all things? Is God in control of all things? And the pastor said yes, and, and the little boy, uh, this teenager, held up a magazine cover that had pictures of starving kids in, in Africa, I believe it was, and he says, does God know about this? And the pastor, of course, said yes, God knows about, about that. And he says, then I want nothing more to do with that God. And he left, he left, the, uh, left the church, never came back. That little boy's name is Steve Jobs, founded Apple. And, uh, and it's, the, it's the idea of if this exists, these faces, these people, this evil, this bad, then either God is inadequate, he's, he's incompetent, he's indifferent, or in some way he's not good, or he doesn't exist. The interesting thing in our society and this cynicism, though, is when bad does happen, God does get blamed. And so in some way, this, this cynical answer doesn't really want it. It doesn't make for anything productive in your life. And secondly, it, it makes all suffering meaningless because there's no one bringing purpose from it. There's no one who can 
cause good to come from evil. And it's an unhappy place to be. But it's still fascinating that we live in a society that wants a God to bless and defend us, but we don't want a God that asks anything of us. We want him to protect. We want him to make things good, but we don't want to submit to his rules, his principles, his precepts, his character in any way, shape, or form. So these two pat answers that are a part of our current very secular culture are answers that are dangerous. And they're, they're answers mostly that, comes, that come from our imagination of God rather than the revelation of God. See, the way that God is revealed in the book of Job and, and, and God's relationship to suffering, it isn't just something you deduce from your experiences. It, it has to be, friends, how God reveals himself. Just like, I mean, if I can put this in personal terms for you, if, if, if somebody wants to have a relationship with me, but who they believe me to be is someone completely opposite from the person that I am, I can never have a relationship with them because I will always be disappointing their expectations. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in, a little over 12 years, that I was standing up here at the front when there was an altar call and people came up for prayer. And, uh, and I would stand there um, and someone would come up. And uh, this has happened like four or five times. Someone came up and says, I forgive you. I'd never met the person before. I forgive you. And I said, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know what you're forgiving me for. And so... Well, you haven't lived up to the expectations that I had for you. So, uh, in, in many ways, <laughs> suddenly when that happened, I'm sitting there going, okay, what did I do? What did I say? You know, what? But I can't have a relationship with this person, even on a human term. I can't have a relationship with them because they have this whole grid that I have to fit into that probably isn't even me but some father figure that they have in their head. And in, the, in a similar way, when you're disappointed with God, it's usually not God who's done the disappointing. It's your imagination about God that has done the disappointing. He reveals himself. He reveals who he is. He reveals how he works and what he does. And then he gives you the option of having relationship with him as he is, not as you want him to be. So in many ways, there are two things that have to become like very rock solid for you to go through suffering. One is your own identity. And the second is the revelation of the identity of God. He has not bound himself to your imagination. He has bound himself to his revelation. And so his word, his promises, his, his acts, the ways that he's dealt with us in history, like the way he deals with Job, is a revelation of his character. If you want to get near to God, you have to get near to who he says he is, not who you expect him to be. Well, 
talking about then. Let me unpack that a little bit. Okay, here's, here's some of the things that we see in this first chapter. The first is the idea of suffering doesn't come from God in this chapter. It comes from Satan. Um, there, there, you have to remember all the way back to how did God create this universe? He created it as a place where there was no disease. He created a place where there were no disasters. He created it as a place of blessing. There was no death. All of this entered in through our disobedience. Now, this might be theology 101, but it's important that you understand this. God never has lost his place on this earth. We lost our place. Satan tricked us into giving him our dominion, into giving him our power over the earth. You see... That's how he became the God of this world. Because the, the, the intent from the book of Genesis is that we would be those who had dominion, who had power over this earth. And by falling into the trap of saying we want the knowledge of good and evil, we then allowed evil and cursing to come upon the earth. Yes, God continues in control. He did not lose his place. Yes, he is in charge, but it is clear from this passage and throughout Scripture, God is the one who allows evil to operate. He is not the originator. He's not the author of sin. He, however, does permit evil to operate. But notice, he still overrules. He says to Satan, you can only go this far and you cannot go any farther. And Satan has to do what God tells him to do. And I, I think that one of the ways that you can look at this is that God only gives Satan enough rope so that Satan can hang himself. See, what Satan wants is for God to be discredited. He wants Job to be discredited. And so he's all out to discredit God, to discredit Job. But what he does is in his zeal, he destroys himself. Please listen to me on this. This is a pattern. Satan overplays his hand if you will stay in communion and union with God. Let me tell you a story somewhat current about that. There was a, a pastor in Argentina who uh, became very corrupt, stole all the church's money, got caught, got sentenced to prison. The prison was uh, a prison that was originally made for about 200 people but had 800 uh, prisoners in the prison. It was a church of Satan. Almost all 800 of them were practicing Satan worshipers. Uh, if they weren't, they were by the time they stayed in the prison for a time. So now you have one Christian who's a fallen pastor in a prison of 800 Satan worshipers. Okay, now, on the outside, looks like the odds are stacked against him. But when he got in to prison, he repented of his sins. He gave, re, like, rededicated and gave his heart to God. And so he began to pray. And as he prayed, he asked, Lord, would you send some others to help me to pray for the people in this prison? The Lord sent a, two other prison workers. I think they were both in the medical field. 
So this pastor got assigned to the, to the uh, medical department, to the infirmary. And uh, he and the other two began to pray together. And what happened is every sick person, which in that prison people got hurt a lot, they got sick a lot, came into the infirmary. They began to pray over them. They led them all to Christ. Before long, they started having chapel services, and the Spirit of God began to fall in chapel services, so much so, those of you who know what it means to fall under the power of the Spirit, people started falling under the power of the Spirit, the guards included. And they would drop their weapons, and then the the inmates who were saved would pick the weapons up and give it back to them nice and calmly, and before long, that prison that had been a church of Satan became a manifest presence of God place. Okay, so we start one against 800, and they had already lost. It looked like the end of the pastor's life. He was sentenced, he became an inmate, he became a prisoner. You see, what you see if you look closely is the enemy is being given in your life only enough rope to hang himself. God is still in charge. It's not a cliche. If you hold on for yourself, Romans 8, 28, I know that in all things, that means all bad things as well as all good things, I know that in all things, God works to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So, this is important. God does not love to see anybody suffer. He only allows the suffering to come into Job's life to manifest God's ultimate purpose for Job and Job's truest personhood and destiny. Look, you and I have got to quit answering and even asking the question to some extent, why me, Lord? Why does this always happen to me? How is it that every time I start to get ahead, I get knocked behind? Why it me? Because w- the way that God answered Job is he says, Job, who darkens counsel without knowledge? In other words, it goes back to who's wise in this equation? Look, I, as we go on, you're going to see that I believe in very genuine emotional responses. But I'm saying to you, the question of the reason or God's motives or, or uh, what's behind this is never really going to be answered to your satisfaction because you're finite and God is infinite. What, no matter how great your experiences have been in life, God still says to you, your counsel is dark because you are without knowledge. So in many ways, it takes humility to then say, I will not speak except what the Father tells me to speak. Now, if you think about that, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I do nothing of my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say what the Father's saying. So instead of being stupid when you do that, you're actually becoming wise because you're recognizing there's so many things I do not know. But this I do know, that God is good, and that God loves me, and that the ultimate purpose of my life will be fulfilled in Christ. That this world is not all that there is. I have seen so many people and, and, and have heard so many people say, 
God's got some explaining to do. <laughs> and I've heard people say, first thing when I get up there is I'm going to be asking some questions. And you know what God's going to say? Who darkens counsel without knowledge? The other thing is that if you really are a follower of Jesus, those questions are going to melt away. And here's what, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see his face. And instead of saying, why did you make me go through that? You're going to look at him with tears in your eyes because you'll see the tears in his eyes. And you'll say, Lord, whatever I sacrificed was worth it. Whatever I went through was worth it. Now, why, what does this mean for us right now? It means that you have to be able to accept certain levels of uncertainty to live a faith-filled life. As a, as a matter of fact, in some ways, you cannot, you cannot fully live in faith without some aspect of uncertainty. Because if, if it's faith, then it's not sight. Sight takes away all uncertainty. In some ways, for me, it's helped to look at it this way. This is the only life that I get to give to God where my gift is my faith. Because when I die, when I stand before Jesus, or when Jesus returns, it will all be sight. As a matter of fact, involuntarily, every knee's going to bow, and every tongue's going to confess. The difference is, not having seen him fully in his glory, we are voluntarily bowing the knee now, bending the knee, and bowing the head now. This is the difference. So, here's Here's the question or here's the struggle that uncertainty brings for the person who says, you know what, I'm going to embrace the life of God in me. I'm going to embrace the life of the Spirit even though I don't know everything and not everything is explained to me. The, the reason that this is so important is found in the text because basically what God is saying to Satan, he's saying Job, lo Job loves me for me. And Satan is the ultimate cynic. He says, no, Job only loves you for what you do for him. You take away the benefits, Job will not love you. See, he's got his finger on the human condition. And he absolutely cynically believes every one of us in this room only loves for what we get out of love. He believes, Satan believes, and it's revealed here in Job. He believes that if he messes with your marriage, you'll stop loving your partner. If he messes with your family, children will start disobeying their parents, and parents will become frustrated and disengaged with their children or are dictatorial towards their children because he believes you only love What's good for you? You only love what benefits you. And he believes if he can touch the benefit, then he can reveal the selfishness of your love. Now, are, are you tracking with me on this? Okay. That just makes me mad. And if it doesn't make you mad, you're not listening. Because he basically is saying, you're a selfish you know, egotistical predator. That everything's a negotiation, everything's a deal, that you're nothing more than petty. That makes me mad. Because I, 
I don't want to live up to his cynicism. I want to love unconditionally. I want to serve not because it serves me. I want to serve because Jesus served me. I want something more than just to be a business arrangement between me and you, between me and my wife, between me and the rest of the world. I want to love like Jesus loves. So what, what the Father is saying is that you and I have the capacity, just like he's saying about Job, that you and I have the capacity to love just like Jesus loves the Father. And he's using the trials in our lives to prove it. Now, please, this is this one, you may forget it, but come back to this in some ways. God will only put you through the ringer so that the gold will be revealed. When the gold is revealed, the ringer is no longer any use to him or you. How do I know this? Well, I know it from Job. It only goes on as long as the Father wants it to go on to reveal what needed to be revealed. Secondly, as soon as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, the debt is paid, and gave up his spirit, his, his life in his body, from that moment on, his humil- humiliation became exaltation. In the book that we just finished the reading in, in Revelation, he says to the church that's failed every test, he says, but if you'll, f- you'll pass this test, if you'll go through this, then you'll never have to go through another test. There's some sense in which when that gold that is in you is refined, when the dross is stripped away and it shines like gold, there's no more need for test. So he'll only put you through as much as need be for your true character and your true integrity and your true heart to be revealed. God knows exactly what he's doing and he knows exactly how long to do it. Well, the final thing is, is there really is an ultimate answer. You know, pat answers don't work. You've got to learn to live with a certain degree of uncertainty and embrace life even when you don't have answers. But there is an ultimate answer. If you look at how Job responds to his loss, I mean, this is a huge loss, loss of his precious children. It shows us in the early part of Job, he loved his children. Loss of all his livestock, his servants, all of these things. Incredible loss. And it says um, Job genuinely responds to this. He doesn't, doesn't do a religious answer. He doesn't do a cynical answer. He rips his clothes as if he himself had died. He goes into mourning and wailing. As a matter of fact, he shaves his head. But then he never lets go of grace. See, he doesn't say, why me? He doesn't say, I don't deserve this. He says, naked I came into the world. In other words, I had nothing. And when I leave, I'll go out with nothing. So what he says is it's the grace of God that I had these sheep and these cows. It's the grace of God that I had these sons and these daughters. It's the grace of God. See, but most of us would say this. God, why did you give them to me to take them away from me? 
and then we would curse God for it. Because I loved that. I loved my children. I loved my servants. I loved my wealth. I loved that. And see, there's some sense in which if your life is built on things and people, then the loss of them will be the loss of your joy. It'll be the loss of your life. It'll be the loss of your strength. But if your life is built on God, then the loss of things and even the loss of people will draw you closer to your source. Because even if you lose everything, you have not lost your true treasure. If God is ultimate, if, if, if he is really your ultimate, and eternity is your ultimate, then what you lose in this life is not ultimate. And it's not what you've built as your source of joy. Like, I know uh, uh, I've watched my wife go through some pretty, pretty uh, heavy trials with my two brushes with death over these last six years. And I know that she would miss me because she tells me so. <laughs> and I've not been in that position because for some reason she's always healthy and I'm not. And, uh, but, I, but thinking through this and how close we've come these couple of times to me losing my life and, and, and how real things get when you realize I'm pretty close to dying here. And I, I adore my wife. I mean, she brings me such joy, but she's not the source of my joy. She points to the source but she's not the source. See, if, if she's the source and I lose her, then I've lost everything. And all I'll be is angry with God because he took my treasure away. But if God is my treasure and I've built everything on God being my treasure, then even loss is not the end for me because I haven't lost the source of my life. Can I, can I say to you men, here. This is a book of men. And this man is grieving his losses. This man is weeping. He's wailing. He's tearing his clothes. He's not afraid to show how much it hurts that he lost. But at the same time, it says here, Job did so without sin. There's a beautiful picture of masculinity here. That we who want to be strong in our manhood must also be strong enough to face our losses and not become numb, not become dead, not act like we have no desires, not act like we have no needs, but really that the more passionate you want to be about Jesus, the more you have to be able to grieve and mourn your pain. And ultimately... All of this is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Job is a, is a type, in a sense, of Christ. Here is a relatively innocent man who suffers, and apparently for no reason, and feels abandoned by God, though he realizes at the end of the book that he was never abandoned by God. But it's a picture pointing to Jesus, the Son of God, 
who was perfectly innocent, who was completely guilt-free, who was without sin whatsoever and was abandoned by God. You see, in a sense, Jesus screws cause and effect all up. You know, I do this, I get this. I don't do this, I don't get that. He screws it all up because he did everything right. He did everything obediently. He did everything submitted, and he was ground into the dirt. But why? So that you wouldn't have to be ground into the dirt. See, in the beginning of this, in in the middle, and all the way to the end, there's a big, big issue here. Will you curse God? Will you curse God? How can I curse God when God himself became a curse for me? How can these lips curse the one who became a curse for me? In Galatians 3.13 it says, He has redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. And in doing so, he has opened up all of the promises that were made to Abraham, including the Holy Spirit. How can I curse the one who has given me himself? Jesus was willing to be treated as I deserve to be treated so that I can be treated as he deserves to be treated. He was willing to be abandoned. He was willing to be rejected. He was willing for the Father to look away so that I will never experience that ever. I can lean into some pain here on earth. I can grieve some losses here on earth because ultimately whatever I have lost here, Jesus has promised to give me back a hundredfold in the life to come. But you have to believe that this isn't ultimate, but that is. That's the ultimate answer. Jesus himself. Will you stand with me? Does this make sense to you today? Four of you. That's good. It's better than most Sundays. I'm getting better. I got four. Last week was only three. So, Are you with me? You understand, if you will track with me on this, and you'll get these, some of them are very simple truths. I know some of the stuff is heavy, but if you'll get this, you will really experience what it is to be more than a conqueror through Christ. It is not willpower that makes you more than conqueror. It is not, you know, deadening your emotions that makes you more than a conqueror. Matter of fact, if you're dead in your emotions, you're already conquered. Because what does the Bible say? Deadness in the Lord is my strength? No, it says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Dead emotions are not joy. You didn't get to deadness from joy. I'm so joyful I'm dead. You got to deadness from pain and loss and unwillingness to process and grieve the losses. Job was wise. He grieved it right then. He grieved it right there. But he leaned into his source. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't curse the name of his God. He blessed the name of his God. He held on to grace. Now, sometimes you have to learn to be more than just one who 
who simply says, Lord, change my circumstances. Sometimes you have to be one who begins to stand in the authority of God's word. So what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to try something out with me. Would you close your eyes? I'd like you to repeat these words and just see if they fit. They're straight out of Galatians 3. This is verse 13. Okay? So I'd like you to say this with me. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I stand against every curse that has come against me and my family. I declare that Jesus became a curse for me. So I command that every curse fall to the ground. Every strategy be canceled. Every scheme be voided. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I receive the blessing and the favor of God. Now, if you just keep your eyes closed for just a minute, just hear my voice on this. God is the restorer. Whatever the enemy has taken from you, the Lord can give back with even a greater measure. Allow him to restore. Even if it means you have to cry over some things, you have to grieve some things. Every loss is retained by your brain. And it is either, it, the, the pain of those losses are either controlled by your faith or they are controlling your faith. So the decision has to come that I will be one who, like Job, feels what I need to feel but goes to my source. Lord, we seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen. We have some folks here. If God, thank you. Go ahead. I like that. We have some folks here who would love to pray with you through any losses that you're wrestling with, even in agreement with you. We have some people that would love to just, you know, make this real to you in a very personal way. They'll be up here at the front. We'll see you guys next week. God bless you. Gotta have my jacket. I love you.